Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mark Vlasic at St. Innocent Winery, the, the new St. Innocent Winery. Uh, it's Thursday, May 30th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Uh, we're going to start you off by asking, why wine? What got you into wine? Well, it was blessed that my dad offered me uh, a glass of wine when I was about seven years old. Um, he thought that uh, it would be good to teach essentially responsible drinking habits uh, in much of the same way that it's done in Europe. My father had Hungarian parents, my mother had Italian parentage, they both immigrated to this country. And he basically said to me, you know, in Europe children get a glass of wine with meal, that that's something that's part of a meal. It's not for the alcohol, it's for the fact that it's a beverage of community beverage that is, uh, well, has long tradition for thousands of years of accompanying a meal and that he wanted me to have the option to enjoy that at dinner. And so he poured me a glass of wine and <clears throat> it turned out that I hated it. Uh, and he, I said, what is this? Because I noticed that he wasn't drinking that wine. <laughs> and uh, I asked him for what he had. And he gave me what he was drinking. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. I like that. And it turned out that what he had given me was Mogan David because I was a first time with Mogan David because I was a sugar addict when I was a kid and I spent all my money on candy that I made in my allowance. Uh, he thought that I would like it and he was, I'm not sure what exactly he was drinking, but it was probably a, a Puy Fusay that no kid in the right mind would like. And I was like, this is great. I love this. <laughs> and my dad's kind of was like, this kid likes wine. And basically, I started enjoying wine at dinner, and he was—he uh, went from not knowing anything about of wine from about two years before I started tasting wine, to having an importer's license, to mm. being one of the early members of the Society of Wine Educators. He was the in the first group of when the Society of Wine Educators created their certificate. He was in the first group of 17 to pass that exam. Wow. He was the first uh, person, to, American, not the first person, but the first American to get their Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, and he basically had an importer in Wisconsin where I grew up, uh, bought him an importer's license because he knew more than anybody in the guy's staff. So he would send my dad to France and shove him all the lists and decide what to buy. So for 20 years, my dad had an importer's license as a hobby. You know, he was a metallurgist in the paper industry. That was his real job. And essentially, I grew up drinking everything. I mean, unbelievable stuff that you think, how could you even, you know, afford that? I, I, you know, an example, so I was seven in 1959. So when the Bordeaux came out in 62 from the 59, which was considered, it had not been for 61, it probably still would have been one of the vintages of the century. Um, but he bought all of the Premier Grand Cru Bordeaux 
in half bottle, full bottle, and magnum. And the highest bottle price was for Lafitte, and it was $7.25 a bottle. <laughs> so it was kind of a different world back then. You could really enjoy and buy amazing wines um, that you could actually still afford. I mean, it was still, you know, 30 times the price of a loaf of bread. But <clears throat> if you could buy Premier Grand Cru Bordeaux for 30 times the cost of a $4 loaf of bread, people would buy it all the time. It's, you know, it's it's gone up 10 times beyond that at least. So, so I basically grew up drinking wine and enjoying wine. And my mother about that same time started studying with a French chef, mm. uh, actually a master chef from the Corton Bleu in Wisconsin who trained chefs out of her house, which was in Fond du Lac. Her name was Madame Cuny, K-U-O-N-Y. And in the Milwaukee public market, the test kitchen is named after Madame Cuny. She's kind of a culinary legend in Wisconsin. And my mother just studied with her for fun for 10 years on and off, not to be a chef, just... So my mother went from a very ordinary cook, my dad went from a martini drinker <laughs> to you know eating unbelievable food and drinking insane wine and basically growing up way pre-adolescence doing that. So that's really what where everything comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, for a lot of people, they start drinking wine, you know, when they're at the end of their adolescence. Uh, and we all know that you learn things differently pre-adolescence than, and, and so I kind of grew up having an understanding with wine. And essentially, the most important thing that I have really is this food and wine natural training, mm -hmm you know, environment that I grew up in. And that's really more important than anything else. I mean, you, it, it isn't that hard to learn to make wine. It's very hard to understand what kind of wine you want to make and then make decisions to, to essentially achieve that goal. Well, I already had, I had a goal. I knew what I liked. I knew I had a palate. I always thought about it in terms of food. So my wines have always been about eating, not just drinking. Um, and, and that has continued for all of these years. So fast forward, uh, my first career was as a theatrical designer. Uh, I went to Madison, graduated from Madison, worked on the East Coast and New York and Boston and um, uh, Cape Cod. And then I came back and decided that living out of a suitcase wasn't for me. Uh, and went essentially finished pre-med and did some cancer research and and then uh, went to Colorado and studied as a physician assistant in the only pure pediatric program in the country graduated in 1980 from that program and finished the last three and a half months of my internship in Oregon mm -hmm. uh, three weeks in at the high-risk nursery and in Portland at Best Kaiser, and then the last three months in a private practice in Salem, and basically just said, you know, I love it. I'm never leaving. <laughs> uh, that was right before the volcano blew, and mm -hmm. that didn't scare me away. Uh, and I started drinking Oregon wine in 1980. And, and I didn't really understand how young the industry was in 1980. I mean, I... I went to California and saw all these places in California and Napa and Sonoma and you know the Central Coast and you know visited wineries and visited Oregon wineries thinking back 
I mean, David Adelsheim hadn't released the Pinot Noir in 1980. And you think about David as being here forever. Mm -hmm. You know, the first Irie Pinot Noir was released in 73. So there had been seven vintages of Pinot Noir ever when I moved to the state and started drinking wine. Um, by 83, which was one of the really early great vintages, uh, was my daughter's, my youngest, or my oldest daughter's, my first daughter's birth year. So I bought a bunch of 83s to, you know, to commemorate her birth year and just kept drinking. It also turned out in 83 that, that, um, before she was born that that we had a two-income family with no kids mm -hmm. and we were both medical in the medical field so we had money and I was drinking a lot of champagne and a lot of some California champagne but a lot of champagne champagne and really enjoying it and in Bon Appetit there was an article and I think it was in the March issue 1983 and Andre Chelyshev was quoted in this article about American sparkling wine as saying that the greatest sparkling wine in America would be made in Oregon, not California, because it, Oregon was the place to grow the grapes of Champagne, mm. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And I literally read the article and said, I'm going to do that. And I don't know where it came from, <laughs> never thought about being a winemaker before. And after that moment, I really didn't think about anything else. And so then the question was, you know, I had all this science. I had a master's degree in pediatrics. I had taken botany classes in college. Um, you know, I, I knew medicine. I knew arts. I knew construction. I knew, you know, I'd been a theatrical designer. I built sets. I was a master electrician in the theater. I had a lot of skills that were helpful, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know anything about making wine. And I went to... Um, started taking classes and one of the classes was from a very well-known microbiologist wine chemist named Lisa Vandewater who had a laboratory in Napa called the wine lab and she was coming up to Oregon and teaching classes about microbiology and fixing problematic wines and things like that and um, I said to Lisa you know I, I want to be a winemaker what should I do should I go to Davis? You know, I've already got a master's degree, but I guess I could get another one, you know. And she said, well, how much wine do you want to make? And I said, you know, I don't know, six or 6,000 cases, something like that, you know, maybe. And she was like, well, go to Davis if you want to make more than 100,000. But if you, don't want to, if you don't want to make that much wine, I can teach you the laboratory stuff. You can take extension courses and learn the other stuff. But what you should really do is go and work for somebody that's doing what you want to do about that size. Mm -hmm. That's how you should learn. And I said, okay. So in the summer of 1987, I went to visit Fred Arterbury in, in McMinnville, right across the street from David Lett's winery. Mm -hmm. Fred was David Lett's first cellar master and his winery was built across the street in Arterbury Limited was the first Oregon producer of sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I should start from the beginning. Little did I know at the time that he was also basically one of the first people to make single vineyard Pinot Noir from vineyards that weren't his own because he didn't have any vineyards. Um, he made Marsh, which was then called the Red Hills Vineyard, and Art Weber's Vineyard, which is 
called close to Goldschmidt, and and he made two single vineyard Pinot Noirs. And then about the time I started working with him, Freedom Hill came in production, and Freedom Hill rapidly became his largest source of grapes, fortuitously or somewhat. Interestingly, anyway, mm -hmm. it's also my biggest source of grapes now after 30-some <laughs> years after that. Um, so I went to work with Fred thinking he can teach me about sparkling wine. It ended up that I also had this fabulous education on Pinot Noir. And he is probably, you know, one of the first people to make really distinctive terroir-specific wines long before me or Ken Wright or Patty Green or, you know, a lot of us that do this same thing now. But he was, he started way back in the 70s doing this, you know. Um, so I did work for a summer with Lisa Vandewater and she did train me about the lab before I started. I took a bunch of extension courses at Davis. Uh, I worked with Fred for two years, apprenticed with him for two years. In 88, I did my first vintage at Arterberry. I did um, 10 tons of fruit. I made a sparkling wine, a Pinot Noir from Seven Springs because they were my friends. That was one of the like second or third vintage they had fruit out of Seven Springs. Mm -hmm. And then I made Chardonnay from Seven Springs. The, there was a crop failure that year so I didn't get enough Pinot Noir to make even the seven barrels that I ended up making. So I got some fruit from a vineyard in South Salem that was uh, owned by Bill Nisbet, Dr. Bill Nisbet. Mm -hmm and blended it with the Seven Springs. But I did make single vineyard Chardonnay from Seven Springs in 88. And then it started to grow. Of course, I had no money. I started the business with with nothing by today's standards. Couldn't even buy a wine press for the money I started this winery with. Um, I had, I basically sold stock to friends and family and said, you're going to lose your money because this is a winery and nobody makes any money in the wine business. And they were like, yeah, well, we still want to play game, play this game with you. And I essentially made a deal that said, if you, it, 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 I'll buy in at this X amount, I'll work for five years for free. Not really for free, but for no cash. Right. I'll work for stock. If at the end of five years, I'll either have something, I'll have been successful, or you'll you'll have wine that you can sell and make up for your investment, and it'll get paid off when we close the business down. But if I if I can make this work at the end of five years, I'll own 51% of the company. So um, that's what I did, and the stock's now worth like 12 and a half times what they paid for it, and <laughs> they're very happy. And I was wrong; they didn't lose all their money. Um, nice to be wrong sometimes. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that's the one nice thing. And we've 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 lost about half of those original stockholders, and gained one person. Um, and we continue to this day with essentially the same group of investors um, who are very divergent. One's a guy that owns a bunch of auto companies. One's a very well-known agricultural um, kind of an innovator. Mm -hmm. uh, one's a assistant attorney general that was a really good friend of mine. Um, my dad has passed away, so I ended up getting his stock. And a uh, tech guy in California, kind of the major players. Um, and it's it works. You know, they've they've 
called me when I needed to be called and they were helpful when I needed help. It's, it's been a really good relationship. So essentially, we didn't have, I didn't have any money to buy vineyards. And way back in the early days, most of the wine made in Oregon was made from purchased grapes. It wasn't sort of the Bordeaux or the even the you know the California model where you bought a piece of land, you grew grapes, and you made a state wine. Back when I started, the statistics, if I remember them correctly, was that 80% of the wine in Oregon in, in the middle, late 80s was made from purchased grapes. And that still today, the most famous vineyards in Oregon don't have wineries associated with them or didn't in the beginning and then built a winery and still sell fruit. So, you know, Freedom Hills never had a vineyard. If you believe the wine enthusiast article when they picked the Willamette Valley as their wine region of the year three years ago, they uh, they basically wrote an article, big article, like 10 pages called Five Great Oregon Vineyards. And uh, at the end of the article, it says the only winemaker that makes wine from all five is Mark Velosic at St. Innocent. Um, and one of those was what it used to be my estate at Zenith, which was originally O'Connor Vineyard, which is actually the first single vineyard Pinot Noir I ever made. I expanded from Seven Springs and picked up O'Connor in 1989 and the first wine I made from that vineyard got a gold medal in the state fair and was picked up when Lionel Nelson had just opened their wine shop uh, in their summer newsletter and was featured in a little box that said essentially I think the title was it's not just for breakfast anymore <laughs> which I still to this day have no idea what that meant but it was extremely successful. They sold a third of my production of that wine in five weeks. And I all of a sudden became, you know, a, a Pinot Noir producer in Oregon. Some hack that just got lucky or something. I don't know, but it was, it was lovely. Jim Clendenin actually came up to judge for that state fair, went back to California and told everybody, Jim from Obon Clamat, that this guy in Oregon was making really good wine and he should be paid attention to. So it was really kind of an amazing start. I mean, I really, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember Pierre Rovani, who, who reviewed Oregon for The Advocate for 10 years, would, would just say, I don't know how the hell you can make this wine, but I'm glad you're making it, you know. Uh, and I don't know either. I, I chalk it up to, you know, how, why are some chefs just great? I mean, was it because they trained? It was just because, you know, why do some people play the violin at five? You know, why can people write music? Why are some people can paint beautifully? I can't paint at all. I mean, I've tried and I'm terrible, you know. I'd love to be able to paint, you know. Um, I think that some people just have certain skills and I had no idea that I had this skill. Uh, I just made a commitment to make wine. Just because I wanted, I just felt driven to do it. You know, it seemed like it just literally was—I call it my moment of insanity. I went from being mostly sane to mostly crazy at, at one. Literally reading one article one day, it happened in that moment. I didn't think about it anymore. I didn't. I just did it, mm -hmm. um, and the result is 31 years now of wine. Amazing. So, how did you get from? getting started finding investors to your original property out with with zenith vineyard there how did that come to fruition 
So the original first vintage was made at Arterbury. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be able to say on the label that it was bottled by St. Innocent. Mm -hmm. So I we needed my own building, otherwise I'd have to say in those days that it was bottled at Arterbury. Mm -hmm. um, so I invested in a multi-use warehouse in South Salem, out by the airport, that was being constructed essentially. So I, I leased the last stall, it was like six warehouses in a row, and modified it so that I could get the Department of Agriculture approval and uh, moved all the stuff there right before harvest of 89 mm -hmm. and then bottled the first Chardonnay and then did the, the second vintage there. So that was my little warehouse. It was the 36 feet square. So it wasn't very big. Um, and did two harvests in that space. And I had made an arrangement with the owner that when we built it, the next 36 square foot space was available to me after two years. Mm -hmm. We actually framed up a 10 foot square opening in the wall, drywalled over it, put a little nails in the corner, and in two years I expanded to the other pace and I just took a hill saw and just went <laughs> and down came the wall and I had twice the space. So I ended up staying there five years and at that point we would grown to about 10 times what our, we originally started doing and needed more space and we were selling wine and it was, you know, it was reasonably successful. Mm -hmm. Decided we wanted our own place so I, I, um, I went looking and I found an industrial park out by where Capital Chevrolet is in the Home Depot mm -hmm. uh, off of Salem Parkway and bought almost an acre and uh, and basically designed kind of a building like an Oregon barn with a big peak in the center and then sheds off both sides. Um, about 5,000 square feet, much bigger than what we had before, obviously. Um, and got a contractor to build it. We built it in five weeks. Unbelievable. <laughs> Not sure how that happened. <laughs> and um, and moved the operation there for the... the um, the 1994 harvest that summer so that's basically where we did the next 13 years um, that summer while we were building that I was approached by Ron Kaplan who had bought Panther Creek from Ken Wright and he said I bought this winery I need a winemaker I don't want to miss a vintage I love your wines will you make my wine for me and I was like, it's going to cost you. And he's like, that's okay. So I said, okay, I'll sign up for one year. I'll make your wine so you don't lose. Then you can figure out what you want to do after that. So I also, while I was building that winery, went into the McMinnville power plant where Ken, where Ken Wright had bought the, that one square block where the old power plant was and looked at it and said, I can't make wine here. It's got no insulation. It's hotter than hell in the in the summer and it's freezing cold in the winter and I don't want to make wine in little bins I make wine in tanks I want more volume I want more heat and Ron was like do what you need to do so um, so not only did I build the winery my second winery that summer but I completely redid that building and also then did harvest 
for Panther Creek in 1994. Luckily, it was a crop failure year. So I guess that's not really lucky, but <laughs> it was. Um, and so the total for both wineries was about what I was planning to make at St. Innocent. So it was mostly just getting these two things done. I look back at it, I think, I, I have no idea how I accomplished that. I mean, it was, it was crazy, but I did it. Um, so that was the second phase. I ended up staying with Panther Creek for five years, hired Michael Stevenson. He was working at the Golden Valley. He'd done one harvest for Flynn and then worked in Golden Valley. And I hired him as full-time uh, cellar master and basically trained him. He became assistant winemaker and then became winemaker. Um, after when I, I walked away and stayed as a consultant for a couple of years, so basically Michael took over um, the winemaking. So continued in that venture for 13 years, first five also at Panther Creek, but then the next eight just doing that. Grew up to about 6,500 cases. And by that point was selling the wine I made and had some money and I'd always really wanted to be, I'd wanted to grow grapes. I just didn't have the resources mm -hmm. or anything else, you know. So, but I had money at that point and I was like, okay, how about if I, what can I buy? Buy some land and I can grow some grapes because I, I, I knew that terroir specific wines were important and I would never stop making wine from multiple vineyards, which has become kind of my signature at that point. But I just wanted to get my hands. I wanted what the French would call, I wanted to be a real vigneron. Mm -hmm. A vigneron doesn't define a difference between grape grower and winemaker. In France, they have enologists, who are people that sit in laboratories and do analysis, and lots of vignerons have enologists that they consult with. So they're not so much about the chemistry analytical side, they're more about the making, the craftsmanship, and the grape growing. Well, I, I, had done, I had worked in a lab, so I already was doing all the all analysis, but I really wanted to get my hands into the ground. Mm -hmm. And I looked for a bunch of places, and basically everything that I looked at fell through. Couldn't find anything. And one of my customers in the middle of this period, so 1994 through 2006, in the middle of this period, customer of mine had approached me and said, I want to get involved in the wine business. And, and he had this, he was living in Chicago, he was a very good customer and he loved the wines from O'Connor Vineyard, which is now Zenith. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he approached me with an idea and I said, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said, well, what do you think I should do then? And I said, well, you've always loved the wines from this vineyard. And Pat O'Connor's wife has passed away. He's heartbroken. He doesn't want to be there anymore, and it's for sale. He's asked me to buy it. He asked David Adelsheim to buy it, but I, I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't. That was too much. Mm -hmm. It's big, over 100, 133 acres, and it had about 40 or 50 acres of vines in it. And I was just like, no, I can't do that. I said, if you really want to get involved in the wine business, come and buy, buy this vineyard. You'd love it. And in 2001, he came and indeed fell in love with it. His wife fell in love with it and bought it. So after five years of that, he realized that, as we all know, 
there's no money in the wine business, that the only way he was going to really make money was to find some alternate source of income. And uh, he and his wife, and he thought the idea of building an event center, which basically didn't exist in Oregon, mm -hmm. was a really good idea. And he has this beautiful piece of property with a beautiful view and vineyards and hills surrounding it. And he thought, I'll build this event center, but essentially didn't have any money. He'd spent all his money on the vineyard. It was one of the original flocks or sites in Oregon, and it, had to, it was being replanted. And it was very expensive to do that. So <clears throat> one day I just happened on the idea of, well, what, what would it take? What do you want? And what would I get if I was that person that invested? And, and we sat out at Starbucks in South Salem one morning and in two hours basically came up with a deal. So I became the investor then got a percentage of the whole property and of the, this minority interest, but an interest in it. And then we decided to write, rewrite the, because it's an LLC, the operating agreement, to allow me to essentially build my own building on that property mm -hmm. and own the asset independently so I could depreciate the asset and that the winery would be continued to be mine. So I was essentially an investor in Zenith, but but they were not investors in St. Innocent. I maintained the same group of stockholders. And so in 2006, we, we wrote that, I made that investment and started planning the building. And in 2007, we finished the building, the winery part of the building um, in time for harvest. And in 2008, their event center opened. So then I thought, okay, I've got an estate now. But the reality is, it came clear to me over a period of years that, you know, Tim essentially ran the vineyard. Mm -hmm. He had a crew of, you know, around nine guys that were full time. I wasn't really, I wasn't out driving a tractor. I wasn't, I mean, we talked about what to do, but I wasn't really doing it. But then I grew because the idea was that I would keep the vineyards I had and then add the Zenith estate. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, that brought my production from 6,000 up to close to 10,000. And we all know what happened in 2008. Mm -hmm. I grew to a really poor <laughs> choice. Not, not what you call a good venture capital uh, investment. And so we grew and the economy fell apart. And so we, we weathered that. Um, we, were, we sold the wine we made, but, but it was it was not easy. One of the reasons I did that is because I basically had no real tasting room because most people when they go to the wine country don't drive into an industrial park between Salem and Kaiser and drive past auto dealerships and say, oh, look at I'm in wine country. They, they don't do that. And one of the hopes was that that by moving to wine country that we would have a more vibrant tasting room business. So we had built a tasting room on the, that property as part of the winery and we hoped to grow that business. Well, that part of the investment was wildly successful. The building that we built, which was a four-level gravity winery, was fabulously successful. It was an absolutely wonderful place to make wine. The, all of that worked out really well. The growth at the wrong time, that was, that was more stressful. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of 2000 and 
in the fall of 2017, a number of things happened that all happened at basically the same time. One was that my daughters, who had all said, we want nothing to do with this. It turned out that my youngest daughter, who had actually been making wine with me for years, five years, I found out what she really didn't want was the very complicated relationship I had at Zenith. Mm -hmm. Because in Oregon law, it was essentially one big mortgage. Mm -hmm. And so we were all on, we were all guaranteeing each other's investments, and that was complicated. It was bigger than than what she wanted to take control of. It was just big and kind of complicated. Uh, but I thought that she just wasn't interested. When I found out that it was really this kind of overgrown business that I created, that was really the problem. I went to her and actually to her and my middle daughter and said, well, what if, what if we downsized? What if we sold this investment here and built something that was smaller, that was more efficient, had less wines, back kind of where we were when we were at the other industrial park, right, 6,000 cases. Would you be interested then? And to my great surprise, my middle daughter, who literally had nothing ever to do with the winery, said, well, I don't want to make the wine, but I'll run the business. <laughs> and my young daughter looked at her and said, well, I don't want to run the business, but I'll make the wine. <laughs> and it was like, it was like the sky, the seas parted and the light shone. And I was like, oh, wow. And so I approached my partners and said, this is what I'd like to do. And kind of amazing in partnerships between me approaching them and between them buying me out was less than three months. They're like, amazing. let's just make this happen. It was insane. It was so graceful. What then happened was, what was I going to do? And at that point, I started looking at my options. I was like, well, I already have... I'm going to keep four contracts, Shea, Mumtazi, Freedom Hill, and Temperance Hill. They're all long-term contracts. They're basically all block-by-block -block contracts. I make fabulous wine from them. They're we're calling now the Heritage Vineyards. Mm -hmm. That will continue as long as it can possibly continue, mm -hmm. hopefully way past the next generation. Um, so I didn't really need more Pinot Noir. I didn't really need more anything. I, I just was like, okay, what... What, what's the best thing? And I thought, well, I sure that my commute is 40 minutes each way because I live essentially over that hill. It's about three miles as the crow flies from here. I was driving to the opposite end of Salem over the bridge mm -hmm. as far as you could get on the other side of Salem and still have a Salem address. Mm -hmm. We really could not go half a mile in either direction and still have a Salem address. And I was like, this is ridiculous. So we started thinking, well, maybe we'll, maybe we should build something out, just build a winery, you know? And I remembered that in 2006, one of my stockholders, Rob Miller from Mount Jefferson Farms, had asked me to come to this property and look at it 
to see if it was appropriate. He was growing poplar trees on it, those fast growing, mm -hmm. like some of these that you see out here. These trees that grow really fast, like in seven or eight years, you can harvest them for pulp. So it was a tree farm, but it was completely covered with trees. You couldn't see any of what you can see now. Couldn't see any of it. Um, and he'd logged it in 2005 or 2006. I mean, 16, he had logged it. And so in 17, I was driving by and I thought, well, let me look at that again. And drove out here, looked at it and thought, this is pretty interesting. And then called Mimi Castile, who's a very good friend of mine and an absolutely brilliant viticulturist. One of the one of these people who found, you know, her way. She was a forestry major, and then her family was in vineyards, and she wasn't going to do it. Then she got involved, and she's she's amazing. She has this feel, and I said, well. I know that I have a feel because I picked all these vineyards back when no one knew where they were. Seven Springs, Freedom Mill, you know, all these vineyards. I mean, I made the first real vintage of Shea in 1994, the first mm. real crop. And that was also a crop failure year in 94. Um, so they made, you know, it was like five barrels of wine from, you know, an eight, two, two or three acres of grapes. Um, but I don't trust, somehow I just didn't feel comfortable. So I brought Mimi out here, we walked up that ridge, and down through the ravine and back up here and around to the top. And I said, I'm thinking about buying this, what do you think? And she got to the very top, this really beautiful view up there. And she said, I think it's possible that the grapes you grow here will be the, probably the best fruit you get from anywhere. And I'm thinking, I have some pretty good fruit. Like, are you crazy? <laughs> I didn't say that to her. I just said, oh, how nice. You know? <laughs> and so I told Rob, uh, okay, I want Vicki Ann to come and look at this. Because she, my wife runs the whole direct sales side of it. And obviously, I'm not going to make this kind of a move without, without her. So she came out with Rob and we looked at the little cabin. We had, Rob had some employees that were living there. We looked at the little cabin, the log home, which he'd built basically, not built as, it was a, it was a home, a residence for tax purposes, but mm -hmm. it was, he built, basically built it as a small conference center. So it's essentially all open except for one bedroom or office upstairs. Otherwise it's just an open layout. And we walked around and looked at it and, and she was, um, not revealing at all in the conversation. So we had all this discussion and she looked at all this stuff and we got in the car and I looked at her and said, what do you think? Having no idea what she was thinking. And she looked at me, she said, well, you know, it's a business decision that you'd have to make because you know the business and you know what you need to do and you know if it'll work or if it won't work. I don't know anything about growing grapes and about wineries, but she said, but, if you want to, if you want to do it here, I'm a million percent behind you. <laughs> and it was like, so literally, from the moment in the end of September when I found out the kids were interested, to December 19th when when I basically got the money, on January 9th I closed on this property. Amazing. And started planting. Um, and basically, although I wasn't really. I didn't really need a lot of acres under the Oregon law. I had to put 15 acres of grapes in in order to get a building permit. Mm. And it turns out that when we cleared, 
what we had, we had 15 acres, that was it. That was really good grape ground. So it was basically out of the 47.55 acres that's here, there was 15 acres of really interesting hillside ground that we could plant with grapes. And so we set about clearing it. And I basically, in December, designed the winery in two days and built a model of it. And, that, and the model is exactly what this is. I, and I took it to the architect and I said, this is what I want you to build. And the only thing that changed from the model, not the space, but the way the taste room, the kitchen lays out, a very good French chef friend of mine in Salem, Bernard Melair, basically said, go, you must not do this. This will not work. This is how you have to lay it out. He was sick in bed and he, he said, come over here now. We have to talk. <laughs> and I went over and only as a mad Frenchman, he was like, <laughs> in his bathrobe. And he got out his paper and he said, no, you must do this. And you must... And that's basically the tasting of the kitchen that we built. <laughs> the, the space is the same, but how it was laid out. And that's basically what we built. They just, and I had, I knew where I, we, we, I knew where I wanted it. The only thing we did is we moved it 10 feet farther down the hill. Other than that, this was exactly what I envisioned, what I laid out. I brought a, f a friend over from Zenith, the guy that ran the crew, and we rented track hoe and a big loader. And we basically started digging out the hillside to try to figure out where it would be and then very quickly realized that this was a job for professionals and that we were not professionals after two weeks of digging and not getting very far and so but basically the so I used CD Reading which was the people that built Zenith and said will you build me my new wine and they were like we'll do anything you want us to do and I was like I want you to build this winery and we built it and basically it's fabulous it's about two-thirds the size of what we had at Zenith um, the taste room is more than twice as big. The really important part that we had realized at Zenith was that that the time when people want to come to wineries is weekends in the summer. Having a wedding venue at Zenith, when people want to get married, are weekends in the summer. Mm -hmm. So we were very limited what we could do outside because outside was a little patio and a 100-car parking lot. Mm -hmm. And all these people coming in on Saturday and Sunday and Fridays mm -hmm. to go to a wedding, not to come, you thought there would be some over, but people don't go to a wedding to buy wine or to buy pay for a tasting at a wine. They go to a wedding for free wine. That's what you get <laughs> at a wedding, get free alcohol and dancing. And that's a party, you know. So what I really wanted was an opportunity for customers to be able to come here and just hang out. I mean, I don't go to wineries and sit at a bar and taste. I don't like to do that. I like to go taste with winemakers and hear stories, and but I, I don't really like to just go like, here, here's your five wines, get the hell out. I, I didn't, it wasn't my, interesting to me. So I knew that when I was deciding this, that I needed it to be a place where you could look like at this beautiful pond and the two ravines and have this outdoor space where people could do a tasting at the bar if they wanted. Mm -hmm. But they could also just buy a bottle of wine and we would offer food because it was always about food. We mm -hmm. were always known as the winery that did all these fancy open house food offerings. And the idea was that we could integrate with these the overhead doors mm -hmm. 
that we could integrate inside and outside as the seasons dictated. We could have an overflow onto the crush pad, which at Zenith was just full of wine and crap. But here we were like, we're not put, we're going to make this so in the winter we can just take up an overhead door and we've got another, you know, thousand, two thousand square feet just of space out there to just hang out, you know, where can, people can come in the winter and we can do all kinds of food events. And we would put our own commercial kitchen in so we could do you know, we could do food and wine pairings, which is allowed under the law, not a restaurant. And we didn't want to be a restaurant. We didn't want to do weddings. We just wanted to, for people to be able to come and have an experience. Mm -hmm. And so the whole design of this and how it lays out over the pond with this beautiful hill and all this gorgeous view was really all about integrating this experience. Mm -hmm and continue to make wine like as we had with gravity into the tanks, gravity bottling, underground barrel room, naturally temperature controlled, naturally all that stuff we, we brought, we just build it in a more compact and, and much more integrative visual. We, if, you, if you go up in the field and you look, the dirt is the same color as the roof and the roof slopes down, it's cut out almost like, almost to the ground in the back. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you kind of, just kind of, you know, and, and from the freeway, the angle of the roof is exactly the visual angle to the freeway. So you basically hardly see the roof. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to make it just that sort of the idea that I'm not here to dominate this space and I'm here to, to be a partner with nature. So essentially, one of the things we did is we left the oak trees through this vineyard and in the other vineyard. We didn't take the oak trees out. We trimmed them up higher. We took out the conifers, which essentially killed the oak trees. We did that, but we left the oaks. We left the ravines naturally. We didn't take them out. We didn't fill them in. We didn't move dirt around. We basically left the nature and built within it. And the idea was that the whole experience would be that kind of integrative experience and that we would grow grapes in that same way so we you know we don't use any pesticides we don't use any herbicides we're doing essentially no-till or you know kind of management mm -hmm. um Mimi is is very helpful and hopefully will continue to be very helpful because i'm not an expert and not only did i get a winery in the setting i wanted for five minutes from my home that is beautiful and lovely to be that I own now own with my wife and and the small group of investors and my kids are interested in taking over it. But now I'm driving the tractor and I'm putting <laughs> the plants in and I'm you know, just digging trenches and putting in drip for the last parts up there because we had a terrible drought year and we lost half of our plants mm. that we put in last year. So we had to, we replanted fifty percent. Mm. And uh, it turns out that I'm digging back there and it's you know been raining all spring and I'm digging down three feet to add some drip pipes and the soil is dry three feet down I'm like it's been raining all winter how is this soil dry so clearly there's not a lot of water here these vines are gonna have to work their way down and so I can not have to rely on this but after all that loss it's like I'm putting in drip luckily I have water here that I I can do that with so you know my goal smaller more compact, go from seven vineyards down to four, six Pinot Noirs down to four, three white wines down to two. Something that's where I'm involved in the, in the land, in all the decisions. My hands are working the soil. 
I mean, it's it's every dream that I that, that I've imagined that all just came true in the last year and a half, and I feel extremely blessed. Incredible! It's an incredible amount of kismet, <laughs> and it's amazing, amazing property, and amazing, amazing yeah. design here. So it's very awesome. Uh, I want to back up a second. Uh, you mentioned when you very first started, um, you wanted to name your wine Saint Innocent. You wanted to say bottled by Saint Innocent. Uh, so that was a name you had chosen early on. What's the genesis of the name? I wanted to thank my dad and name the winery after him. So my dad's name is John, as far as I knew, was John I. Velocic. Mm -hmm. And far as anybody knew, because his middle name was Innocent and he hated it. <laughs> I never told anybody that his middle name was Innocent. Um, the only reason I knew is I was putting his socks away and at the bottom of his sock drawer was his social security card. It's very interesting. I had to get a replacement social security card a while ago. And when the social security card had said, put this in a safe place, do not carry it in your wallet, like the bottom of your sock drawer. <laughs> and I thought, what's the odds of that, you know? So I, real, I ruled out John's Winery, because that doesn't really cut it. And Velocic Winery sounds like a pickle company. I didn't really want that association. And so I thought, innocent, what can I do with that? And it was about the time that a lot of California wineries and actually Oregon and Idaho were St. something. So San Michel, San Chapelle in Idaho, San Superé in Napa, already had St. Jean. And I just thought, St. Innocent, everybody can spell it. Nobody can spell Velocic. <laughs> Pretty much everybody can spell innocent anyway. And I did a trademark search and there was no St. Innocent winery. So it's like, okay, that sounds good. So I actually didn't tell him. I actually had been making some homemade sparkling wine mm -hmm. since 85. I disgorged some of it, had a friend mock up the label, which is basically the label we still have, and um, labeled up this and sent it a case to my dad. And then I sent him a prospectus. I said, this is what I'm doing. And uh, he then would, many years he would come, he worked harvest with me until he couldn't work it anymore. Um, he would come when we had wine club events and or open houses and his name tag said, John, quote, innocent, Vlasic. <laughs> and he would say, I'm John Innocent. The winery is named after me. He was very proud, so it was a very nice way to say thank you. So that's that's how it got its name. That's awesome. It's a great story. Yeah. You also met, you mentioned um, at the original winery, now at this site, you've gone with the Gravity Flow Natural. Tell me about why you chose to go that way and, and why you chose to, to stay with that when you were redesigning here. So, <clears throat> one of the things that, you know, when I started early on, started studying and getting the idea. I started, you know, like the first Cool Climate Symposium ever was in 1983 and I went to it. And there was a lot of discussion among the early winemakers about why the Pinot Noirs were the way they were and, and, and what it was that, you know, people were doing experiments. That's the, the innovative, inquisitive, cooperative, attitudes that that still are a huge part of why Oregon is 
what it is, especially the Willamette Valley is where it is, is that people ask questions about everything. And one of the things that I remember there was a research that was done on destemmers. Mm -hmm. There was an Italian destemmer that everyone used. And the wines had really hard tannins. And one of the people got the idea that the must pump in the bottom of this was just chewing up the grapes and breaking seeds. So did a modification, taking the must pump out of it so that it would just kind of pour out, picking it up, basically putting, you know, gravitating it in. And, and I remember, and I don't remember who it was, but I remember that the research basically said that the wines changed enormously just by taking out this little pump. And it, it made me very aware that, that how you handle Pinot Noir had, had a huge effect on the kind of wine that you made. And it, these things have been used in California with no problem for Cab and Syrah and everything else that they were doing. But in Oregon with Pinot Noir, it didn't work at all. And it, it made me really start to say the paradigm for Pinot Noir is inherently different than it is for what normally we make in the United States. And that, that the way we handle things is really important to the kind of wine we make. So, you know, the second vintage, I had no money. I mean, but I knew I wanted to buy temperature-controlled fermenters. I wanted a refrigeration system. I wanted a must pump like Fred had had, which is a very, it's called a Moino style. It's a very, it's a progressive cavity pump that's very delicate. And I knew I wanted a really good distemmer, like that would give me whole berries and I could control, you know, all of this stuff. Um, I didn't have any, I mean, I had a story warehouse for the first two buildings. But after 17 years of that, I was like, if I'm going to build a winery, I'm going to build a winery that takes out this must pump because as, as gentle as it, in fact, I can control it and it's all in a, you know, I control the speed and everything. It still is another step that things go wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and I, instead of sort of going to high tech stuff, like some other wineries, like, you know, built machines that drop stuff in, I was like, you know, if I just use gravity and I just build a building that goes downhill, I can do my processing up here and just drop it in the tank. And if I basically put a removable railing in above all these tanks, I can just take the railing out, push the equipment to the edge, and instead of essentially, like a lot of wineries, they de-stem into a container, and then they have to move the container and dump it, which is a whole other step. It just slows everything. I thought, why don't I just build a building? that just drops down mm -hmm. and I can just put and I'll make, put the equipment on wheels and I'll just so basically I redesigned the must pump with essentially a hopper with a little very gentle screw feed that just pushed it five feet off the end of the of the where the crush pad was and just dropped it in the tank and it became you know it was just if I'm going to build a, a new winery I'm gonna do basically three things. I'm gonna bottle by gravity, I'm gonna receive by gravity, and I'm gonna age my barrels in an underground place where they're never touched. Because a lot of wineries had, you know, sort of underground. Mm -hmm. um, Adelsheim was really the only place that had underground where the barrels sat. 
and didn't get moved. Most people had metal racks that they moved barrels around in. And, I, and for me, it was, I, I never understood the logic behind that. If you had your wine cellar at home, would you ever put your wine cellar on wheeled carts and every time you wanted to get a bottle of wine, just pull the carts out? and get your bottle of wine, then just put them all back in. You would never, you know that you're not supposed to move wine. So why should you move barrels? It's just aging, mm -hmm. it's part of, and it just never made any sense to me. And when I would go to Europe, nobody had metal racks. They were all permanently underground. That's how everyone aged it. So I knew that when I went to Zenith and I was gonna build sort of a dream that I wanted this idea of an underground cellar that the area underneath the barrels was was essentially just had rock between it and the natural dirt that was down there so the moisture that came through the ground would just come up through the rocks and and keep it humidified and that it would be essentially underground so i wouldn't have to refrigerate it and i learned from adelsheim's mistake where they built a barrel room put five feet of dirt on it and then paved a parking lot above it and they found out that by the end of august all that heat from the blacktop was raiding all the way down in into their barrel room and they had to cool it so I was like well, I'm not putting it below parking lots so I basically at Zenith we put it below the event center mm -hmm. and here we put it below the tasting room mm -hmm. so that there would be no radiant heat you know the coming from so we could keep it cool in the summer so essentially it was just trying to take each place was another step in what can you do at Zenith, with four levels, it was pretty complicated. This place has two levels. The way we do the gravity is we essentially just built the crush pad with those railings, but then we made the railings and the spaces big enough that we could just pick a tank up and just put it 11 feet up in the air, put it on the crush pad. Since we rack by nitrogen pressure, it doesn't really care if I'm going up to the same level or going up 11 feet, it still just fills the tank. So, so we were able to rack by nitrogen without pumping. We were able to p take it above the bottling line and we could bottle by gravity without having another third level, sure. which is what we had done at Zenith. And then the space where we're bottling is as big as a fermentation room, so it was a lot, it was a lot more flexible. So I was able to do those things with a simpler design. Um, and then basically because we have a storage building, we, instead of storing all that wine in our crush pad, we store it down there. So this is essentially open for the public. Sure. So we have tables and, you know, it's just it's just open and they come down and look so how would you describe you've, you've had a long time making a lot of different kinds of wines how would you describe your winemaking philosophy what do you hope people get out of your wine well the the first is that that for me saying you make food wine which is what when i started i was like i'm making wine to eat with became like the fad everyone's like well i make wine for food I make wine for food but then I would taste the wines and it's like, at least my understanding of what wine for food is, this is not what this is. <laughs> you know, this is kind of American winemaking, which is, uh, and I actually did this for 10 years. It was kind of like, well, you've got these grapes. If they're ripe, you have all this flavor, all this beautiful tannin, you, could, you should extract it all because gosh it's gonna you know it's all good stuff so you should get a lot of it and then when you have a problematic year you say well i don't have very much of this good stuff but i should probably get it all so i have some and it ended up in the same place that i was just kind of overdoing everything 
And that got kind of excessive. And about year nine or year eight, I was like, this is not what I want to be doing. And then I started really looking about what what could be different. You know, what... And, and so the idea was always to make wine that was to eat with, which means acidity and balance of flavor. It doesn't mean big fruit and big wood. So th those are two basic precepts of, of what I, I've always done. However, the inherent demand of Pinot Noir for elegance, you know, they, 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 they talk about Pinot Noir being the iron fist in the velvet glove, you know. It's there, but it, it is, there is this balance that you're looking for. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't, I call cheerleader wine, where it's like, here's all my wood and here's all my tan and here's all my color. That's just not, that's not what Pinot Noir is about. But I didn't really understand that at a really deep level until my 10th vintage. And what happened was between my, in 1998, I decided I needed to go to Europe and go visit winemakers. And I actually went alone for five weeks and basically spent five weeks visiting wineries in Champagne, Alsace, Burgundy, the Rhone, Piemonte. And, and in, in Vone, actually in Vone Romanet, in Vone, uh, with Christine Gieborg, who, who was the winemaker for Munieri Gieborg. I had met her at IPNC a couple years before and said, can I come and visit you? Your wines are fabulous. You have the best wine here. And she said, no, you're wrong. Your wines are fabulous and you have the best wine here. And I was like, thanks, but I know that's not true. Um, I went to visit her and we tasted out of barrels, which is for me way more important than tasting finished wine. It's like, it's like when the wine is still really um, at its most revealing phase. And I was tasting with her, and I just had this moment. It was like it was like the only other time, like that first moment mm -hmm. when I said I want to be a winemaker. Mm -hmm. This was the moment I was like, oh, it's not. It's about balance. Pinot Noir is about not how much, but how perfect. Mm -hmm. How you find this, all of these things that are coming together, and you find a way that they all seemingly float around this center of this wine rather than everything's weighed down around the edges. Um, and I came back and I started making fu fundamentally different, 98 Vintage was fundamentally different than anything I'd done before. And it was really interesting because I told this story to my customers and you know we'd, they would come and visit. And, and several years later, after I've been doing this for a while and I had wines out from 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, I had a number of really good customers that came and visited me and said, you know, we've watched your wine since the beginning. We always loved your wines and we're really glad you went to France. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so. It, it is hard to describe, but it is this goal of 
how you put things together. And one of the things that I realized into the 2000s was that 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 part of that complexity that you're looking for in Pinot Noir couldn't just come from barrels and winemaking, but it had to come from grapes. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, when everything started dying of phylloxera, I, I, was, I went on a mission with the, all the growers that I had to replant with more diversity in higher altitude sections of the vineyards. So more different clones, different rootstocks, but higher altitudes, grapes, you know, it was a big rush to get early ripening clones, mm -hmm. which to me doesn't make much sense as it's getting hotter. You, you need later ripening clones. You need later ripening rootstocks, not earlier. You need to go higher where it's colder and you, and you can build more complexity into wine. So, so we started replanting with instead of one or two things with multiple clones in these vineyards. Mm -hmm. And as those came into production, I realized that, that the wood and oak is, people like oak, really like it. I mean, Matt Kramer has written a lot of articles and, you know, as, a, as an editor for Mind Spectator for mm -hmm. years, um, a columnist wrote in one of his books that, that oak was catnip for humans. Never forgot that. And, and I realized that <clears throat> if my goal is to make balanced wines that are good to eat with, that tell the story of a place. So, so if, if one vineyard's wines taste kind of like another vineyard's wines, how have you really told the story of the place? Mm -hmm. That the choices that I was making as a winemaker, instead of being directed to make, oh, this tastes really good, needed to be, this tastes really revealing. Mm. And then I also came to the belief, and this was partly of my work at Oregon Pinot Camp, and it was called the Style Workshop, that, that really the idea that there were good and bad vintage was, was not really, I didn't believe it anymore. I, 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 oh, I used to say, this is a crappy vintage, but I made some pretty good wine. I was like, it's not a crappy vintage, it's a really hard vintage. Mm -hmm. It was a lot harder to do a good job in this vintage than it was in an easy vintage. And then my wife would always say, it's the, it's the vintage that separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls. That, that when, it, when nature throws everything in your face, that the best wines will be made from the people that get it. So I then also adopted that the wine shouldn't taste the same from like a hot early vintage, from a cool late vintage, from a vintage where there was more stress of rot to where it was more perfect. Not, obviously you don't want the wines to taste rotten, but, but there is a thing that happens in those vintages, especially that are cooler and later and more problematic, that gives you a balance that is actually really beautiful in long-term aging. Yeah, they don't show very well when they're young because they didn't taste very good when you picked them. It's not that the flavors weren't there, it's just that they were kind of wound up in all this other stuff that was happening. And with time, what I discovered was that the true terroir and the true grape would win out as long as you didn't mess it up. So, so then it the, became not just what's the site taste like, how does it taste with food, but how is the vintage making its mark on this wine? And, and what, I, what I decided was that first I had to plant better places with more diverse clones. Because 
in early warm vintages, different cones are going to ripen perfectly than in cold late vintages. The early cones in an early vintage are going to go like over the top really fast. But the late clones are going to do really well because they're going to ripen and you have more hang time and more flavor development. But if it's really cold, the late stuff's never going to get ripe. But the early stuff's going to give you that burst of flavor that you need. And that by putting those things together, the wine had more depth and more breadth and had, was more revealing of what was, what was going on into it. So that became a really important part of, you know, it's kind of like, I was already becoming a vineyard owner, even though I didn't have my own vineyard, because I knew that what I had to do was, as these vineyards were dying and being replanted, that I was essentially went to these people and said, I want you to do this in this place for me in this way, and then I'll pay you a lot of money to tell you your cost to do that. And what I want in return is not a discount. What I want is at least 25 years of this is for me. And, and they basically said, okay. Um, and so I, I'm very grateful that I have friends that grow grapes that are like, we want to do business with you and we actually want to make a commitment for a really long time with you and we're willing to take this risk with you to do this um, because that could broken down in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But you know, I've, some of those vintages are coming up in 20 years now where the grapes that were planted, I've had for almost 20 years. And they're fabulous. They have everything that I've ever wanted. So, so the idea in the winemaking is that since I've worked so hard to put these pieces in place, that I want then you to taste that. Mm -hmm. and, and that then made, like, because there's a lot of choices as a winemaker, you know, whole cost or not whole cost or new wood, not new wood, bottle young, preserved fruit, bottle old, have more earth and texture but loose fruit. And what ended up happening is that I gravitated towards things that gave me more long-term ageability, which meant going way past the vintage for bottling the single vineyard wines, and much less new wood because that wood that we talked about, that sort of catnip, essentially also works as a filler. So if you have grapes that aren't so good or aren't very dimensional, you aren't really a great site, you've got nice fruit and nice tannin, but no acid, you know, you know, you can blend something else, but if you're making single vineyard wine, you're sort of, and so when you, things aren't fitting together right, you just add some wood. And the wood just, I talk like a stonemason. If you're a really crappy stonemason, you have to use a lot of concrete to build your wall. If you're a really good stonemason, you lay that wall and you can dry lay a wall and it'll be there 100 years later. You can go in Europe and find these walls that were dry laid 100 years ago that are still completely perfect. And so the wood acts as, as that, that masonry, that concrete. So I thought, I don't need so much wood because I've got much better fruit. And I don't do whole clusters because one of the things about whole cluster is that it adds, from my feeling, a really strong signature of whole cluster. It adds a spice from the stem. It adds a kind of really bright, kind of strawberry red kind of fruit that's a very signature fruit. And, and that's not really, that's the same whether it's from Shea or Mumtazi or you just kind of push that thing. And I thought, if I'm gonna do these things, I'm, you're gonna taste what I did rather than that place and that vintage. And because I'm backing off on the wood and I'm not doing those things, I'm also creating wines that have more kind of imbalanced dimensions flowing across the palate. And most importantly, wines that are very broad. Mm -hmm. And I really, to really understand that, 
it was actually part of, again, Oregon Pinot Camp, working in the style workshop where we sat down with the six winemakers and we started talking about we wanted we wanted different winemakers with different styles. So Lynn Penner Nash had put this together and we were having this conversation with these six winemakers about how we should divide ourselves up and who would be the kind of big powerful wine and who would be the more middle wine, who would be the more elegant wine. And Lynn and I thought we were the elegant wines and they basically told us that we were crazy <laughs> and that that's not who we were. And and one of the winemakers said to me, you know, your wines, I can always find your wines because they have more width than anything else. They have this broad middle of lots of things that are happening in a very interesting, interactive way. And that as you taste the wines and as they're open as they age, that stays with the wines. And, and I, then I had to figure out how. And what I really realized is that that one of the things that I'd gotten from Fred was he did small bin fermentation, but he really liked big tank fermentations with a lot of grapes. He liked them to get warm, and he liked to the, the thing that sort of did its thing. And I met Jacques Lardier from Jadot and now from you know the, the the Jadot Oregon thing. And Jacques was really big on hot fermentations, long macerations. Well, I'd already tried long macerations. I didn't like that. But I started thinking, you know, this heat could really work for me. And so, I, again, that early 10 years, I would do long pre-fermentation macerations, long post-fermentation macerations, you know. And, and it was just like too much. One of the valuable things that Michael Stevenson at Panther Creek taught me was after several years, like three, three years or something like that, he said to me, you know, why do we press these wines when we press them? I said, well, we press them because the cap falls. And Michael was, was like, well, shouldn't we taste them <laughs> in the fermenter? Shouldn't we like see what they taste like? And I was like, well, I just press when the cap falls. But I finally, it didn't, t you know, he was like, well, let's taste them. So I did. And it was like one of the huge lessons I learned. You know, when you're a good teacher, your students teach you. Maybe I was a good teacher. He was a great student. <laughs> and I started tasting and I started realizing that what is really fermentation about? Fermentation, it, you know, we think fermentation is about extracting tannin and, and, and alcohol, making alcohol out of sugar. And that successful fermentation, it uses all up the sugar, and you get all the color you can get, and you get tannin. But what I started realizing is it's going to ferment whether it's on skin or not. It's still going to ferment. You can press it off early, and you can make white wine out of it. It's still going to ferment. It was really all about extracting what you were extracting from the skins, also from the seeds. Because as Roger Bolton from Davis once said, you're, if you think you can make wine without seeds, you're crazy. You have to have seeds. The seeds are an important source of part of the tannin that's in a wine. You must have seeds. So then it came to me like, well, okay. So the pre-fermentation maceration I gave up because that was too much. Post-fermentation I gave up because that was too much. But now it's about how in the middle, how do I manage that? And I realized that by using a bigger fermenter, which essentially accumulates as less surface area for the volume, fermentation produces heat. I had a hotter vessel and it would stay hot. It wouldn't just get hot, but because it was big, it wouldn't radiate the heat very quickly. So it's get hot and stay hot. And it became a goal of mine to keep the wine above 80 degrees for a week. That became like, that's the goal. 
That's why these are this size. That's what the function of these fermenters are, is to get this stuff warm. And then, as we were getting towards the end of the fermentation, we started tasting once or even twice a day. And it was all about when do you have the balance of tannin, acid, the, the, essentially the structure. Because as a lot of winemakers know, the wine at the end of fermentation sometimes tastes really bad. It does not taste like anything that you would think about wine. <laughs> what you're really doing is you're building your entire tannin structure for aging. Because from that point on, all that's going to happen is that you're going to lose those tannins because they're going to start to coalesce into larger molecules that are eventually going to become insoluble and fall out. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, what do I want? What is the balance? of this thing. And so I started tasting for when the wine had the width, the texture that I was looking for. And then in pressing, most people would just press until, you know, the wine was dry. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, what I'm basically doing is getting closer and closer to the seed and then eventually squeezing the crap out of the seed. And of course the seed is hard, but I can still do that to some degree. And I, and I was like, so one of the things I'd always done was tasted at press. Mm -hmm. And I would always stop the pressing when I didn't like the taste, when I thought it got green or herbal or whatever. And most people, just, I would I'd never take it. I'd just throw the rest of it away. And lots of people that had worked with me was like, I don't understand, like, there's more wine in there. Like, don't you want that wine? I was like, no, it doesn't taste good. Why do I want it? If I take it, I'm going to use it. I'm either going to put something in it to take out the green stuff, in which case I'm going to strip the wine. It's not going to be very good. And then what am I going to do with it? Well, I'm not going to drink it. I got enough house wine from, you know, big beginning and ends of bottlings. I don't need more wine. So I'm going to put it back, but I don't want it. So why would I do that? So I essentially said, I'm not doing it. So I always taste at that point, but now I started tasting ahead of time and saying, okay, this is the right moment. And we press it just this far, just to the balance, because, because the free run juice actually doesn't have a lot of tannin in it. And then when you start to press it in the middle of the press cycle, like, like about 10 or 12 pounds per square inch, all the whole berries that we use, the stemmers that give us a pretty significant amount of whole berries, they all pop. You get this flush of this bright intraberry fermentation with the sweetness that's in there that gets released. Well, of course you want that. And then, you, then the question is how much more of that do you want to build since it didn't have a lot of tan in the beginning, then it had kind of nice from the intraberry, and now you've got to build your base coat. You know, so then, then how much of that do I want? And then I would just, you know, we would taste literally every, we wouldn't press a lot of times, but we would press, we would taste it every moment the press was increasing pressure. And then at some point we just say, that's it. The other thing is that we've always, instead of just shoveling an entire tank out, we actually use a thing that where we can kind of suck the liquid and whatever skins want to come along with it out. And then we get in and shovel, but we never shovel the whole tank out because the bottom of the tank is like somewhere between one and three inches of just basically seeds and yeast. And I was like, I don't want that in my press. I don't want to squeeze that. And so we would literally shovel down till we got to that layer. And then we would pile that layer up and let it drain. And some wine would come out of it, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 gallons. And then we just throw that away. It would never go in the press because I don't really want to squeeze on those seeds. So we kind of, it was kind of like, what do you want and how do you want to get it? And it was always that questioning, like how do you get closer to wines that really taste like the vineyard, that actually have a vintage signature and that are, have this beautiful balance of acid, tannin, fruit, 
earth, spice, flowers, funk, you know, the whole thing that makes a Pinot Noir, it makes Pinot Noir so interesting. And that's, that was really, that, you know, it's, it, it, I didn't know it when I started, but I just kept asking questions like so many of us in Oregon and listened to what other answers other people or the other questions they were asking and essentially just refining, 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 trying to get closer and closer. So it's not simple, but, but I'm happy when I take four single vineyard wines out and I, I go to a retailer and I say, I've got four single vineyard Pinot Noirs and they taste them and they say, these wines are all so incredibly different. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know, I basically made them, I make them the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I use about the same amount of wood. They're in barrel the same amount of time. The fermentations are roughly similar. Mm -hmm. Wines that tend, Mumtazi and Freedom, which tend to be more tannic, we don't let it get quite as hot. We press it a little more gently, maybe just a little bit earlier. But it's like a day, it's like five degrees. You know, it's not big differences. Mm -hmm. But they say they taste so much like that place that you've described to me. And I'm like, that's the goal, thank you. <laughs> the highest compliment. You know, it's it's nice when you actually achieve what you are trying to achieve. So. Yeah, I think we should switch it out. Switch batteries? All right, so you mentioned your the relationships you've built with these vineyards over the years and, and sticking with them for long term. So I'm curious, what what are the benefits, you, you, you talked a little bit about this, but the benefits of working with different places and with different growers uh, and keeping those long-term relationships, is that, why did you choose to do that? Was that something you consciously chose when you started or is that something you just, you kind of came with when you realized the quality of the grape? No, it was always about place. And I picked all the vineyards. Well, Seven Springs were friends. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what they had when I started making wine from them, you know. Um, And then other people would just come to me and say, do you want grapes from my place? And, you know, I started making wine and the O'Connor thing really worked out. So, you know, people are like, well, you want to make another single vineyard wine? And and a lot of these growers were friends. So they, I knew them. I hung out with them, you know, had Thanksgiving together, you know, back in the old days when our families were young and uh, not as big as they are now. There's too many of us to all have Thanksgiving together now, but but back in the early days, we did we did all these things together, and I knew that from drinking Burgundy and drinking German Riesling, that site was huge. The interesting thing was that we were all looking for sites. But there's no roadmap to find that. Mm -mm. Nobody knew. I mean, I, I think that there is an incredible, we're incredibly fortunate that David Lett came here, looked at all of Oregon, looked at the Willamette Valley, and said, I'm going to plant on this hill, the side of this hill at the Dundee Hills. Because in my evaluation of terroir in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley primarily, because that's what I know, I don't really know about terroir in other places. Um, he probably picked the most perfect place to grow Pinot Noir that still exists. I call it the spa. It's Pinot Noir spa. Montazi, Pinot Noir hellhole. It's great because it's a whole different kind of a story at Montazi. Mm -hmm. And it's equally fabulous, but it's incredibly different. 
And I knew that when I was looking for places that I didn't want, like, I'll take this hill and then I'll take this one right next to it and this one next, because they wouldn't be that different. So I was looking for places that would have diverse kinds of, you know, soils, hillsides, weather patterns. I, I, and then I just looked and, and I was just inspired by certain places. Mm -hmm. and, and I realized that many, Dick Erath, you know, Jim Marsh, how did Marsh know? He was a fifth vineyard plant in Oregon. How did he know that that was unbelievably fabulous place to grow grapes? He just did it. Mm -hmm. And and that vineyard is still there and is still one of the greatest vineyards in the state of Oregon. Um, I think that just like somebody can play the violin, somebody can make wine, somebody can cook, somebody says, I want to grow grapes and I want to do it here. And it just speaks to them and 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 thank god the people that it spoke to were also really committed because i absolutely believe that you could have a fabulous piece of land and if there was an idiot growing grapes you'd never know mm -hmm. because grapes are pinot noir is insanely finicky the only reason that these vineyards are great is because a person was inspired to plant there mm -hmm. and they were an inspired grower. They were a natural talent. And so when I work with vineyards, although I have there's things that I want to do, essentially that grower is knowledge based and the fact that they live there and they they live that earth, they live that vintage, they those are their plants, they take care of them, that is their life. That is insanely important mm -hmm. to me being able to do what I do. So I was essentially gravitated towards sites that were inspirational and people that I believed could do it. You know, it's this last harvest was 25 years for Shea, Freedom Hill, Temperance Hill. None of these were known back then. All are in that list of five greatest vineyards. You know, Mamtazi wasn't planted 25 years ago, so this will be this year will be my 14th vintage at Mamtazi. When the vineyard, its full crop in the older blocks was 0.7 tons an acre. That was when I, because it's such a difficult place to grow grapes. That was my first vintage in 2006 from Mamtazi. So these are these are just places that that spoke to me and and that I that I don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a short, there's no short sides with me, but the sh short side you're going to get is that um, I, I made friends in Alsace. I went to Alsace because I wasn't intending to go to Alsace on that trip, and it became a hugely important... I, I've got bugs. You're critters became a hugely important part of my experience in Europe. And I've literally been to Alsace like 13 or 14 times, mm -hmm. almost as many times as I've been to Burgundy. And, and I met winemakers, including Andre Ostertag. One year, Andre said to me, I'm, the ed I'm one of the editors for this Alsace winemaking journal, and I'd like them to interview you for an article. So I said, what do I know about Pinot Gris and you know Pinot Blanc? I mean, I'm, we're in Oregon. This is the land of Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc. You know, this is the promised land for all kinds of white wines. You know, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Silvaner, Chasselas. I mean, all these incredible things that are grown. I was like, okay, you can interview me. And so we had went to lunch, and this this guy came in and interviewed me. And what ended coming out 
was not about my reverence for Alsace or my attempt to grow Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc in Oregon, but it was the American who discovers terroir. <laughs> because they never thought about it. Because it's on a map. It's been on a map for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is a great place to grow. This is the Grand Cru. This is Richebourg, you know. This is this is DRC. This is Pomard. You know, this is Rougienne. This is Yepineau. This is, you know, Munchberg and Alsace. This is Rangen. You know, these are like, they're on a map. They don't discover. They just, they try to buy it. And they try to make wine from it. But when I des describe that in Oregon there's no map and we don't know where any of this is, and essentially what we had to do was go find places that were really interesting, and that's how we would find it. They thought that was just the craziest thing they ever heard in their life. And so this whole, and it became the cover story of this issue that, you know, the American who discovers terroir. In the land of Cadillacs and hamburgers, I think, or something like that was in it. You know, this American discovers terroir. And I never thought about it like that, but it became really clear that, that there was also this part. And that all of the people that planted those vineyards, we have a huge debt of gratitude. Because they were not only committed to doing it right and making the growing the best possible grapes so we could make the wines that have made Oregon famous. But they had a knack at finding these places. Mm -hmm. And then I just gravitated to those those five places mm -hmm. because the other one that I don't use was Zenith, which was the estate that was the fifth of the five. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean there's a lot of blessings here. Mm -hmm. So you've got this new place now, and your family—you have daughters that are interested in, in in being part of the business. So, what's the plan now for the upcoming future and for their for sort of the transition plan? Uh, it's it's a very open. I'm I, I, everyone pretty much knows that I'm not stepping aside anytime soon. Um, Mackenzie's worked now six harvests. She when she's here, she she tastes for the special selection, which is kind of the ultimate Saint Innocent wine. Mm -hmm. She does the barrel tastings with me. She the taste with for the Village Cuvée, what goes and what doesn't. She, it's pretty interesting that she because when I taste, I don't say much. I write notes. And I always ask the people that are tasting with me, Antonio and Alana, and what they think. And and basically, Mackenzie tastes like I taste. She she gets she gets the things. Um. So, just she's just going to keep training. You know, she's right now. She also trains people to ride horses at a very high level and she's she's in four years now and training with this program out of uh, the south east of France and she's actually a working student for her instructor that she's worked with for four years so she's in France for the next couple of years she's going to work this harvest in Germany and then then the harvest after she'll work with probably with somebody I know either in Alsace or in Burgundy mm -hmm. she'll do a harvest there in between this, all this training that she's doing. She'll come back as a certified instructor. Right now there are two people in the United States that are certified to teach this particularly very high-end way of training people. Um, so, you know, I want, she's got to have her dream too. And that's part of her dream. That's why that, we had that little phone conversation. I'm, I'm trying to see if I can buy the pasture that's south of us 
and some hillside that if other things go off would give me some more places to plant grapes. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of investigating that and that was a discussion with uh, about that property. But this would be a, it's right off the freeway. It, it she would do a horse bed and breakfast kind of a thing. Uh, horse hotels, which <laughs> I didn't know anything about until we had a driver horse down to Dallas to fly it over to France and we stayed in horse hotels and man, it was, it was really, it was really nice people. It was a very cool thing. Um, she's like, I want to have a horse hotel too because I'm right on I-5 and everybody drives up to Washington to California for all these shows. And they drive right by us and we could have a horse hotel, you know? I'm like, yeah, we could, you know? So, so, you know, everybody gets to live their dream. Um, she'll get, you know, more involved when she gets back, obviously. Um, I don't, I don't, I think that there is a natural life to these kinds of transitions and and I'm not interested in running away uh, and and she's not ready to take it over so for now we're good mm -hmm. but she's interested and and hopefully that will continue and I have some grandkids and great nieces and nephews and maybe one of them will get interested and I'm you know I'm open mm -hmm. I'm open I'm, I'm happy to do what I'm doing my wife not so jokingly says Mark's just going to die in the vineyard one day and we're just going to bury him wherever he falls. That's it. Don't Convenient. don't don't tell anybody that cuz I think it's not quite legal to do that but <laughs> but um you know but, but I I I like it here and now that it's much smaller much more compact and much simpler. It's something that I can continue to do for 15, maybe 20 more years if I'm blessed. You know, we'll just see. Let's talk about the industry more in, in a large scale in general. You, you came in, you've been into it for a while now. You came into it in very early days of, of it starting to grow. So besides just the size of the industry, the pure size and scope, what are the changes you've seen uh, come to Oregon in, in your time here? Well, the the biggest change happened in you know around 2000 to 2010, and that was that people that weren't winemakers, that were people who loved wine, realized that Oregon was the place to do this very special thing that you can't do hardly any place in the world to grow Pinot Noir. You can grow Chardonnay a lot more places than you can grow Pinot Noir. You can grow Riesling a lot more places. But Pinot Noir is, there are not a lot of places and each place where they've grown Pinot Noir outside of Burgundy has its own style, its own package of Pinot Noir. You know, I mean, basically, you know, the North Coast region of California has their style of Pinot Noir. This, you know, farther south Monterey and those have their own style. You know, we have a style. Southern Oregon and or the, even the Umqua has its own style. But what we're doing here is is unique. And once people figured out that they liked that, people that had made some money, especially when the economy was kind of booming and had money, decided that they wanted to be part. That their dream was to have a winery. So it went, Maisie, you're okay. This is the winery dog. She's not sure what to do. Maisie, it's okay. Be quiet. Come here. If you want to come here, come here. Yeah. Here you go. You want to be on camera too? 
You want to be on camera? Ready for your close-up? She, she won't come that close. But Anyway, um, so then there was this, because the kind of growth curve was kind of like steady, and then it kind of went up, mm -hmm. and then it kind of went steady again. Around 2000, it kind of started going like this, mm -hmm. and now it's flattened out again. So around that time, people said, I want to be part of this industry. I know I'm not a winemaker. I know I'm not a grape grower, but I want to be part of this industry. And so a lot of wineries started where they looked outside of their own selves to find the expertise. They found, prop, found somebody helped them find a piece of property. They paid somebody to plant the property. They paid somebody to manage it. They paid somebody to make wine. You know, big custom crush operations where, you know, 20, 30 or more people's wines are made in one place, all under these different labels. Then they built a winery. They built a tasting room. You know, some of those people have turned into winemakers and grape growers like James Fry, mm -hmm. who was an artist and, and became, really did embrace the whole thing. And so he's, you know, he is he is now a vigneron um, because because that was probably one of the things he was meant to do. Besides being a fabulous artist, he 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 really wanted to make wine, and and he learned. But there are a lot of people that that are no wineries that are run by people who are not the primary winemaker, grape grower. Mm -hmm. That they have people that do that, and wineries have grown to a place where investors are now owning, like Adelsheim, or owning those wineries, and, and the person that was started it is no longer there. You know, it's a small number of people that, at this point, that are still doing what, you know, what Don Lang and, and um, John Paula Cameron and Veronique Chouin and, and my, myself that started in that, you know, 80s period that are still running their businesses, that are still making their wine, that are still growing grapes. Um, so that's the biggest change. Um, I, and there's nothing wrong with those people. I mean, that's part of the growth of an industry. Um, and it gives winemakers jobs. But that sort of proprietor, vigneron, you know, owner, that there, that isn't the main, the main signature of the industry anymore. Um, so it's just changed. It's like all change. It's not good or bad. It's just, it's just, it's obvious that, that, that it, it's gotten more complicated. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that when we, when Flocksher showed up, to replant a vineyard became way more expensive than what it used to be. I mean, you could plant an acre for a couple thousand bucks. You know, here it's like twenty-five thousand an acre. The land is nothing compared to the cost to put the grapes in and bring them up to production. Mm -hmm. You know, higher density rootstock plants. I mean, you know, I have you know four thousand dollars an acre just in plants. You know, just just in raw material and. You know, then you think about a trellis. It used to be, you know, a small post and one wire, and you just kind of trained it along the wire. And you know, now it's you know nine wires and posts that are much closer and heavier steel. And you know, and now you know you're not spraying Roundup, but you got have cultivators, so you're driving it around. And on this place, it's incredibly steep, so I had to buy a crawler because I basically rolled my tractor over <laughs> on one of the hills. I was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. So I bought a crawler because. I wanted to live a little longer than rolling tractors. 
just not very much fun. Um, you know, so it's taken more money, and that means you need resources, people that have bigger pockets, and you know, it's just not as simple. So I understand that evolution. I still think that people are here because they want to be here. They love this idea that we can make Pinot Noir in this place, in this way, that is unique to the world. And that's, that's fabulous. And they still care about each other. That's, that's because this basically doesn't happen other parts, parts of the world. Exactly. But it's huge, it's a huge gift to be here. So what do you see as you look into the future for Oregon, the next, say the next 10, 15, 20 years? What changes are you, are you anticipating? Well, it's probably going to get warmer. Um, you know, my commitment here was primarily in Chardonnay. You know, we're way out of the normal range of balance between Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Oregon is, has like 12 times more Pinot Noir than Chardonnay, or at least 10 times. Mm -hmm. And in most of the rest of the world, it's more even balance, um, at least in the old world. I think that Chardonnay is insanely exciting. I think that we have the right terroirs in some places to grow really good Chardonnay and make world-class Chardonnay. Uh, it's been done for more than a decade. It's been recognized for more than a decade. It has been very slow to catch on, but I think that that's gonna be the biggest change, which is why all the Pinot Noir here is just going, I'm not gonna make a single vineyard Pinot Noir from this property. It'll just be Village Cuvée, just the kind of blended base thing that we get introduce people to the wine and kind of the story of the vintage and this idea that it's a wine, not just that's inexpensive, but it's a wine for that idea that you can have red wine and white meat. So it's balanced with very little wood, a lot of diverse flavors, not a lot of fruit. So it's a very stretched out, interesting, nuanced wine that doesn't overwhelm white meat. That's that, and that will, and I've got three clones and in different places, and that's, that's why that is, again, planted for that. But I planted only one clone of Chardonnay, basically on the same rootstock in four different places on two different soils here. And I think that exploring what Chardonnay terroir is like, because now I've been changing all these different factors, just keeping it one factor for the plant and putting it in different places at different elevations and different soils, that will be where I, what I'm looking forward to the future of Chardonnay. And I feel like a lot of the young, really ta talented wine people um, are really making their reputation on these small lots of very food-focused, not oaky, not sweet, fruity, but really interesting textural, solid acid backbone Chardonnays that are the kind of things that has until now been the purview of Burgundy mm -hmm. and not really anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people are now saying, we, we can do that here too. Pinot Noir grows right by Chardonnay, in Burgundy, it can grow right by Chardonnay here. We can do this. And I, I think that's the big thing. I expect that the rate of growth will drop off just because the land's getting a lot more expensive. The marketplace is a lot more competitive. You know, you've got now almost 800 Oregon wineries, about, you know, like 500 or so in the Willamette Valley. That's a lot of market competition and distributors are not 
you know, you have to still go out and sell wine. And I think people are very much realized that that if you make it, you got to sell it. You know, Fred, one of the lessons Fred gave me in my, before I started this winery, he said, don't ever make a bottle of wine you're not willing to sell. And the layers of that statement, it was like, it was like written on a stone pallet from Mount Sinai, you know, of winemaking. It was just like, I, that has been so, insight was so insightful mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that the romance is, you know, there is a certain, it's a lifestyle. There is, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's a lovely lifestyle, but it's really hard work. Mm -hmm. And people, I think, understand that it's just not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be easy, you know, to do this. So kind of feeds into my next question, which is I have two young students here who are both interested in getting into the wine industry in some way or another. What would your advice be to someone entering the Oregon wine industry today? Well, kind of depends on, I think that you need to be educated. Mm -hmm. I think that you, if you're going to do a marketing, you need to have marketing experience. If you're going to do sales, you have to have sales education. If you're going to manage a business, you need business management. If you're going to make wine, you need to know you need to know winemaking. If you're going to do grapes, you need to understand grape physiology, what's really happening. You, nothing substitutes for having brain cells that are well linked together with information. But like what Lisa told me way back, go work for somebody that's doing what you want to do. See if that's what you want to do. If it isn't, go work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Because just like relationships between people, mm -hmm. as you have more relationships, you get closer to finding the relationship which really meets your needs and is reciprocal. And, and there's no substitute for an apprenticeship. In France, still, if you want to be a winemaker, you have to do a stage. You have to go work. And we've had, I've had winemakers from southern France and from Champagne and from Burgundy here doing stages and people from Oregon mm -hmm. and Washington and the East Coast that have all come here. You know, Jerry Stass, Sass from Trained With Me, mm -hmm. you know. Um, actually doing it and asking questions and seeing what makes sense for you and what doesn't in the real world is important. You know, so you got to do it all. You can't just do one little thing. Really helps if you can fix stuff when it breaks too, because <laughs> it always breaks. And and repairmen are really expensive. So you know, it's another one of those stone tablets things, right? Yeah, it'll always break. It's gonna it's Murphy's Raw. <laughs> if it's gonna break, it's gonna break in the middle of harvest at two in the morning when you're exhausted and you have two more tons to go and you just like I have to get this done, and then the rock's gonna plug the must bump up and you got to tear the whole thing apart. And, you know, yeah, <laughs> helps to fix stuff. That's all the questions that I have for you. Um, this is your chance at the end. If there's anything I should have asked that I didn't or anything else you'd like to talk about that we didn't cover, feel free here. Or if you guys have any questions, covered. I, I just want to say that it's a huge privilege to be part of this business, this industry, this lifestyle in Oregon. And for you to record this from people like me, 
people that started way before me, to have this as an archive and available is, I think, hugely important. You know, if you don't learn from history, you keep making those same mistakes over and over and over. And this is an important part of history for the long term, so we can create you know, in industry wisdom, in industry archives. So I appreciate what you're doing very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. That's what we're hoping for. So excellent. Well, thank you again. We'll let you off the hook. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our projects a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.